0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, my name is Halalia Dean. You're listening to the New Books Network podcast. I am here with Diana W. Selmo to talk about A Queer Way of Feeling, girl fans, and Personal Archives of Early Hollywood. Would you like to introduce yourself and your book?
1: Yeah, hi. Thank you so much for having me. My name is Diana W. Selmo. I wrote... This book, while um, while thinking about my place in academia, I'm an assistant professor and currently in critical studies at California State University, um, and I started thinking about this book perhaps 10 years ago, just to give you like an idea of how long these things take, and it's very briefly inspired in my dissertation, which I completed in 2014, oh my god. It was like, <laughs> it was another century ago, it feels. And yeah, I started thinking about it and this idea of what what we did not know about early cinema and how so many of the things, when we think about Hollywood, you immediately imagine color and dancing and sound. And I thought what came before that and what was the role that young women, particularly the ones that to this day, we still kind of call disparagingly fangirls, I was curious what was their the roles that they played and in institutionalizing and implementing this enormous thing that we call Hollywood but also celebrity culture and that's how we got here
0: and can you give for any listeners who have not read the book can you just given just a situate us in the time period.
1: Yeah, so this book is really about the 1910s, Um, the idea that like cinema was invented in the 1890s as just entertaining shorts and then we start progressing into features into what we now call celebrity culture, which means you go to the movies to see specific named stars. So I look at that decade that transition decade between having anonymous fun people on screen and people just went to see like trick films and little amusing events to feature films that starred recognizable name stars. And I wanted to look into what people in the audience were thinking about the beginnings of this cultural institution that would be Hollywood cinema. And we know a lot about silent cinema in the sense of production or directors, but we didn't know so much about what women were doing at this time, particularly women that were anonymous film goers. And I was curious about how we could uh, discover more about them by turning into what I call personal archives, which is not the celebrity memoirs, not so much the kinds of things that were being published in the press at this time, but the traces that were left behind by ordinary people like you and I that go to the movies. So, my whole book is about looking at these young women and how the intersection of the invention of female adolescence and Hollywood Cinema came about. And to look at personal archives, which are diaries, scrapbooks, personal correspondence, can uh, offer us insight into the participation of young female audiences in the 1910s, particularly in the years that comprise the First World War, 1914, 1918, because they are like crucial years, as you can imagine in American culture. There's so much transformation and it bleeds into how young women uh, participated. In the birth of Hollywood.
0: So that actually leads us right into mm-hmm. one of my questions. Um you know what? Let's get back to that. <laughs> we we talked briefly about um before we started recording about your sourcing, mm-hmm. which I think is really important, especially because I am an archivist. This is I'm sure will be cross-posted, but this is going on the library science channel, which is not strictly <laughs> <laughs> that is not that is not a metadata tag on this book. Um <laughs> so I'm interested just first of all in how you source material. I mm-hmm. looking at the notes, there's a mix of special collections, author's personal collection. um, so how did you identify material in archives and to purchase and were there other avenues you investigated which didn't pan out because a big part of what you write about is the sort of uh negative space in archives, right? What you couldn't find. So I think what you did find is also a good place to start.
1: Yeah, this is a wonderful question. and I love that it's not metadata, it's not like tagged as library science, <laughs> but it might be relevant, you're right. I did become quite friendly with a smatter of archivists and collectors and librarians. <laughs> so yeah, this is a great point. Like my work, as I said, I was really interested in personal material. So I was interested in audience and female reception. I was interested in intersection with young people, which are often seen nowadays as ideal consumers but we don't take them very seriously and even when we do we see them as monoliths we don't know the individual people so I wanted biographical data I wanted to know specific people know their class their ethnicity their nationality and how all those things would kind of infuse the documents they chose and of course one of the main points of my book was queerness um, as it is in the title i was really interested in this notion of queerness not just the same-sex attraction but a much bigger idea of like non-normativity which includes gender non-normativity includes homoeroticism but also includes the sources that i use non-normative sources and particularly in film history we have we're kind of bit of a sticklers for there's only about 14 percent of films that survived were public that were released in america between the teens and the 20s so we know they're faced with like over 80 percent the loss of materials and so there is this passion amongst film historians for the film that survives or for the fragment and I was not interested in the film that was produced for the mainstream and for the commercial consumption I wanted to turn into the everyday person I wanted to turn into the person that may have gone to the movies to make sense of attachments that were non-normative that were not just this traditional I want their outfits I want. I'm a girl that wants to kiss the boy or a boy that wants to kiss the girl I wanted to broaden how we understand the early cinema, which is plagued by so much loss and so much unknowingness and scarcity. And so I did it by start thinking, where can I find these? Where can I find echoes uh, that go beyond what we know? And how can I release myself from the obsession with the thing that survives, that it's tangible, that it's nitrate, that it's archived at the Library of Congress? I kind of wanted to push against the knowledge that we know is what the institutions kept, because institutions have a history of like privilege and white supremacy and etropatriarchal biases. And I kept wondering, how can I find diversity? I, I have a few avenues, and many of them do not pan out. You're absolutely right. One of them was going to every women's college that was open around my period, so the early 1900s. If women's colleges were open at this time, again, they were privileged. The majority of people going to them were white and middle class educated. But I would go and I would attempt to get grants, you know, specific to each of these like Vassar or Smith or Radcliffe. But if I didn't get it, I would try to like go on road trips for other reasons and just hop into them and say, hey, to the librarian or the archivist and be like, (laughs) do you guys have scrapbooks or personal material, any kind of people that were in their teens, or early 20s in this period in your archives? And you'd be surprised how much memorabilia alumni donate. And so, again, this limited the scope of class and nationality of many of my um, of my, let's call it audience members. Uh, Ethnicity can be quite complicated. So can creed, because sometimes it is disclosed that there is a relationship of having been born Jewish, but not being a practicing Jewish person. Uh, The idea that they are middle class and educated, um, but might not even uh, signify their creed until it's just in their diary. So you're like collecting all the materials. You see that they're collecting a lot of ephemera to go into Mary Pickford. You have no clue about one's You know, any kind of personal proclivities until you match that ephemera with their diaries or their letters. And they talk about Shabbat, or they talk about if they identify as Catholics or Christians, they identify as Christmas coming and being really excited about the celebration. And so you kind of piece these things together. Um, The greatest absence, of course, is finding African American or Black Americans, because there is a long history of no call in the Black colleges being even put in place. Those that were put in place did not have the funds to keep archives that were of their own alumni. And often there is no generational wealth, which means some of these materials, either house or institutions such as women's colleges, or they are kept by their family members for generations in attics or as relics that pass from family member to family member, because then People that have not had the economical means or clout to keep houses in their generations for a hundred years. Many of the materials of people that identify as working class or non-white are not represented in the institutions. And unfortunately they're not represented in the second space where I find my objects, which is eBay. Mm. So I go to eBay or estate sales and I would find like great-grandma, kept this scrapbook with their favorite stars. And sometimes it would be annotated marginally that would give me insight into this person's life or I would have access to their descendants. And they would tell me, "Oh, I remember my mom saying that grandma loved going to the movies or was a very smart dresser. Um, and that kind of access that one gets through eBay and through creating a relationship with a seller, or even with this state sale where you chat with someone is not accessible to those who did not have family members as custodians of their materials for over a hundred years, which is as far as we are now from the nineteen teens. So it's the negative space, as I call it. It's like I don't have I could not find a single scrapbook, for example, of a self-identified black woman. From the 1910s but that does not mean they weren't there right. it just means that we have to question our over-reliance and oh we have universal knowledge of history through the sources that survive without questioning that the sources that survive are representative of heteropatriarchy patriarchy and white supremacy
0: have you read dorothy berry or cydia hartman on this
1: no uh wait wait say it again
0: dorothy berry is an archivist cydia hartman is um yes a, yes classic i will if anybody's listening to this i'm gonna put links in the uh the blurb for the Mm -hmm. podcast episode i don't want to get too far off track um there is of course some very very interesting work being done on this question um and also now i'm curious did any of the descendants of people you ended up writing about read the book
1: Oh, man, that is a <laughs> mire of a question. So first of all, yes, I want to shout out to Hartman's Wayward Lives, because that is like yes. the aspirational model of how to write with great compassion, inside, acumen, uh, about and around all these kinds of violences that we experience when don't find the representation of the majority, right? So first shout out to that. And second, the quagmire of when I start this book, one of the things, because I worked in reception and fan studies, often people are that are writing it on the right now, on the Twitter, on the Tumblr, are contending with having to anonymize their sources or be afraid of outing in some way their sources by quoting their social media output. And I was like, I don't have to do any of this. Mine are dead and buried. I live in joy because I'm talking with the dead here. And this is like the depart. I was naive, right? Uh, because <laughs> first of all, once you start touching people's and some of them went to war or survived war, and you start touching those objects, you immediately are—they're not dead anymore—and you are not absolutely. Protected. You're not protected anymore. You're you're like crying over uh, you're the pieces of it. them.
0: You're like they're dead, and now I have to care for them because yes, there's no that's This is I'm holding it
1: yeah it's exactly that it's like it's it's, I think it's like the first sentence in my book is that these are conversations with the dead and it has like a famous
0: hold on I have it right here let's let's (laughs) just uh read it for the audience while we're at it oh my goodness I often think of writing as conversations with the dead
1: Because I do. That's the thing. (laughs) I think we hold our dead, right? Like our own beloved that depart. We kind of constantly having conversations with them. And like, oh, what would they say if they were here? Or they taught me that. And we carry them with you. And you keep them alive by having their memory and having those conversations with them. And once you do that in research, and I think that's what Sadia Hartman's book is so beautiful about, is that you're doing that exactly. You are still conversing with those that came before you. And even the ones you did not know, that you find similarities between the two of you or the way you experience life or experience, and experience the joys and and the oppressions of everyday life right and finding the continuities is actually um it's both piercingly painful and really reaffirming and uh, so i i had a very troubling relationship with the descendants some of them uh had put some of these objects for sale uh, right after the family member died Mm -hmm. And I reached out, not knowing, just like, oh, thank you for this object. I've I've purchased, I received it. Can you tell me more about the young girl that put it together? And it would be a void. And then there would be an answer like six months later or a year later saying, I'm I have so much grief and it would be a a touch of like wanting to have a therapeutic conversation with me and me not knowing how to negotiate that, particularly because I started, like I said, over 10 years ago. So I was like a 20 something year old. I was like, I don't know how to do this. So there was those moments where I just felt I choked up too. There were the moments where people were incredibly excited about the project and very giving of information until they heard the word queer and they shut Mm. down.
0: Like, this, no. is this a pattern that you experienced? No.
1: thank God, no. But okay. it was traumatic enough in the sense because it was a protracted relationship, I spent sometimes 10 years with these archives. Yeah, um, and it's that complicated relationship with the family member decides to donate all the letters and personal materials to um, a, a historical society, so it's open to the public. You go, you read, you want to pay your respects to ask even like what was their middle name? Like little, little details that you want to get right. And they are so solicitous and they're so happy that someone notice and see their family member as an important historical figure. But then when they realize what the topic is, they immediately let their worst nature, I think, or not immediately, but their worst nature at times came. Mm-hmm. And I didn't, I didn't expect that because I think I'm protected in academia in my cycle, my circle of immediate friends family right are do not think I have to protect my family member for you from you associating the word queer to them and that that was painful
0: (laughs) yeah that that's tough (laughs) yeah and you you really did have to deal with uh living people
1: I did or chose uh...
0: to I suppose I mean I suppose that that was a step beyond because you were invested in your subjects but stay you know that's part of doing this kind of research
1: yeah and I think I didn't although it's put out there I didn't want to for example I could get the museum's permission to put their photo in the book but mm-hmm. I didn't want to do it without the explicit permission of this family member that I had chatted with. Right. So it was likely overzealous, but it was also like the difficulty of them understanding what queer means in uh, the complications within like academic discourse, which kind of revealed the, the discomfort further because it wasn't actually about trying to taxonomize this dead young woman's sexuality. It was talking about her attachments to film stars and to the act of movie going, but it shut them down the word as if it was a negative Board. So that was what was, I think, complicated. But yeah, it's yeah. living people, living people, that people are complicated.
0: Yeah. <laughs> um, That actually leads me to one of my other questions. When you said taxonomizing, mm-hmm. this is a big kind of theme in the book in not an overt way, but this idea of classification, you mm-hmm. start by exploring essentially the invention of the adolescent girl, mm-hmm. which you gestured to earlier um which but that's a constrained category there's this Mm -hmm. related invention of this category of the fan you write about fan mail Mm -hmm. and girls would share stats if they didn't have a picture their height their weight their hair color Mm -hmm. you at some point described the fan scrapbook as an idiosyncratic form of data storage which i liked (laughs) um so there is this idea of classification and i wanted to ask which ones were useful to you? How did you navigate those? And also, were there any that you found you were disregarding or reimagining in some way?
1: I think I kept, I, it was a struggle that's the thing there was this and I think it really mapped the of the the keywords that were chosen for my book like adolescence is difficult to classify and it's defined by it's somewhere between childhood and adulthood but it is in itself amorphous it's you know what a child is you know what the adult is the adolescence is the moratorium in between that it's all about fluidity right and Mm -hmm. that's why it became so easily associated with excess and experimentation and self-discovery and why it kind of became encoded with the idea of fan but like queer it's also people appropriate it or reclaim it or apply it in such a myriad different ways and of course in so many ways the scrapbook is impossible to catalog and it's very it's a very intimidating object so when I approached it I was very attached to try to decide do I describe this in a store almost art historical art of words do I describe it formally what kind of colors how many images per page Uh, how is it cut how is it glued I was very concerned with that when I started this project I wanted to bracket the scrapbook as the art history artifact almost archaeologically so and it was really constraining the same way that I wanted to also look into queerness as more a same-sex homoerotic kind of Uh, classification. And I started realizing the more I, and that's why it took so long to do this book, because once it was my dissertation, it was really attached to classification. Mm -hmm. It's very attached to the idea, okay, an adolescent girl is going to be teenaged. The um, scrapbook is going to be something that has a certain kind of aesthetics, the way it's cut and pasted is important for consistency and coherence instead of just leaning into the hybridity and the that of, of the object itself and the messiness of trying to like define what queer or girl or fan is. But by the time I had abandoned the dissertation, and as I should say, this book is like 10% of the dissertation. <laughs> <laughs> so the dissertation was checked out. I, I probably had like a breakdown in the midst of this. I was like, I can't write it again. I could write it again, but I did not want to, you know. So there's a lot of like <laughs> the same way that I, I had classified myself as you are someone that is going to revamp your dissertation in one to two years and it's going to be a book. And so I had to constantly re-edit and rethink through these things. And one of them, the ways that did manifests is I let, uh, uh, I decided that scrapbooks that I was going to look at had to have an identifiable author. So as miscellaneous and as indiciocratic as it could be, I needed to know details, biographical details about the person that was behind it. And that was provided by either the finding aid or, and this is the most often, the girls would write their name as we do inside the cover of a book saying, Mm -hmm. I'm this person. Um, And they would put often, thank God, their address, their age. And this would make it much easier to identify by using finding aids such as ancestry um, websites or school record databases so it made census polls right it became much easier uh, another thing was I had to kind of like let go of the classification of adolescent girlhood as was being taxonomized in the teens by psychologists and they themselves were like it's between 10 or 12 14 24 and I just kind of <laughs> abandoned it
0: 12 <laughs> to 24 is very very different <laughs>
1: Exactly, exactly. And they because what they were trying to communicate was the idea of dependency. They were not married. They were not self-sufficient. They likely, they could have a job, but they still depended on being perceived, their social status still depended on certain performance of virginity and purity and modesty. Otherwise they would be considered fallen women and they could Mm -hmm. be 16, but because they had sexual experiences, they were considered women immediately. So I had to like also let go and my brackets became have to identify as unmarried, have to identify her or self-identify as being dependent on parents or still enrolled in school. So the classification became something that I had to have this difficult relationship with, which was simultaneously creating brackets. And when the brackets kind of prove themselves to be artificial, uh, let them go. Mm-hmm. But you, I only fell into the swing of what was artificial and it was me wanting them to be there because it was helpful to me instead of being truth truthful to the historical uh findings i only got into the swing of it after a very long time of having purchased piles of scrapbooks that would not fit they could be extraordinary but i couldn't find biographical information about this person because i just had a first name right or I could not tell exactly the decade in which they were made, even if the object, like most of the sources I could pin down to the magazine published in 1918, I could, then there were objects from 1940. So I couldn't tell if it had been assembled in the 40s or the teens. So there was all these different ways in which I had to like embrace and relinquish classification at all times. And Can it was- Can
0: you say, sorry, go ahead. No, 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 please go ahead. Can you say a little bit more about the artificiality? Are you saying just your constraint of people that you could identify was artificially constraining your sources, or were there other other artificial constraints?
1: I think for me, the artificial constraint. I think some of them came from me. Some of them were. I think many of them came from me. I should say. Mm-hmm. I think, as I was saying, like yeah, lessons clearly came from from uh, the the large changes, right? Cultural changes in a hundred years of how we conceive of this uh, um, of this category. And how ambiguous it was back in then, and so I I was trying to hold it and similar and in a way that I could feel like it was bulletproof, mm-hmm. but I also think it is when you're writing a book like this, where, as I just described, you can have these less fortunate encounters with living members, or where you know that the there isn't an ac- no, there's not much academic how do you say like precedent to what you're doing necessarily you're stitching together girl film queer in all these ways that go back and forth in time the way we use the word queer now is slightly different although still overlapping with some of the ways in which it was used in the teens it was already a slur for people that were gender non-conforming same-sex attracted but I kept trying to guess how people were going to poke holes at my classification mm,
0: it was and a in, it was a reactive process
1: exactly and so it took me maturing right to let go and let the artifacts speak for mm. it so for example when there ta- I was very attached to having young women that i could identify as adolescent according to the 20th century and when i got into the male voice poems some of them were clearly 40 something year olds women that identified as married or used the prefix misses and so Wait, now pause i was in- for one
0: second yes. for for those of us who have not read the book who might be listening oh yeah just give us a brief overview of that chapter on the male voice poems
1: yes yes of course so I should have said this in the beginning you're absolutely right like there's there's a variety of chapters and one is more focused on like personal letters that girls sent to a specific female star called Florence Lawrence and these are a personal collection that the star kept in the teens and it's now in a repository in LA there's another chapter about scrapbooks uh, that girls kept that were all about cross-dressed images of stars and how they collected images of female stars that are dressed in male garb other that it is about girls that collected images of male stars but in ways in which you're being physically intimate with other male stars creating something that for those of you that are familiar with fandom as it takes place in spaces like Archive of Our Own or Tumblr, the fact that young women are attracted to see uh, men in intimate or vulnerable situations with other men is nothing, is very common, right? And I wanted to gesture towards the fact that there was already girls collecting that kind of male-male intimacy in their scrapbooks. And then there is another chapter, which is the one about male-voiced poems where uh, we have, they are published, they're not personal materials, they're per- published in magazines magazines but where girls would create poems uh, often love poems to female stars but they would pretend in their poetic voice to be a male lover so they would describe themselves as a beau or a love or love struck male audience member and they would see themselves as a man making love to these female stars and what was so interesting about it is that they signed it with their real names so mm-hmm. they didn't hide Right with like initials. And that could mean anything. It's is it's new neutral, right? They would sign it as constant or misses something. Therefore, wanting to kind of like show clearly that they wanted to use a male poetic voice to make love in a public space, the published magazine, to make love to the female star. So that, that is the chapter that I was um talking about and how it it defied what i wanted to do with this book and at times because these the people that were writing some of these poems were women that identified as uh misses or described themselves as being of um an older generation the previous generation um and so i had to at times fluctuate i wanted to talk about the the shapes that queer fandom took and it was clearly about being gender nonconforming or gender bending in their um written expressions of fandom uh, but I had to do that I had to question why would these people these audience members that didn't identify as teenagers like such a large majority of the other fan participants did why were they doing this and questioning the affordances that this new celebrity driven cinema was creating for older people particularly right. older women so that in kind some ways of...
0: another sort of that was my unexamined name. population
1: <laughs> um and i think complicating the idea of fandom like we still use the idea of fangirl nowadays and we do it kind of indiscriminately we even use it uh, you might identify as um as a man and use it say i was fangirling all over right. taylor swift right and uh we use that almost dismissively even if people reclaim it as something of of pleasure it's really associated with both femininity and, and immaturity so it's interesting this idea to of think. excess being yeah connected to
0: youth or adolescence in some way, yeah.
1: Yeah, so I want to like complicate that it was never just the young people that, you know, people have been, particularly women, have been passionate about celebrity culture and about, um, I think they've found great pleasure and freedom and creativity and imagination in fandom way before we understood fandom as something that was at our fingertips because of the internet
0: while we're on the that fan poem chapter i thought that that was very elegantly done you had these poems and then you had sourced all of this biographical data and really fleshed out the authors and can you talk about the process of sourcing that and how it affected were there any surprises beyond beyond the age of the beyond the age of some of these poets how did it affect your understanding of fan poems as a a form
1: I, I definitely there was so the way I did it was I started using the internet uh it started <laughs> you know um it's this is another interesting like overlap because you meet someone in real life nowadays and you just google them right just enter them on a search engine uh and try to find more about them And I start doing that to these dead people. I start just plugging their names in and see what happened, particularly in Google Books, because Google Books has a lot of digitized school records or the Strangers Records, like American Society for Roses, where, you know, it's there or... Or uh, census, obviously, it's the most popular one, just to know where people lived and who was uh, sharing their um, household with them, uh, if they immigrated, if they got married, like those kinds of like institutional paper record, right? So school records are also interesting. Sometimes you plug in the name of someone and pops in, pops out like some kind of student magazine or yearbook from the 1910s, because so many universities and colleges are starting to digitize their own um, memorabilia. Mm-hmm. So that. That's how I started fleshing on these people. But one of them, the two that are, that are mentioned, uh, Irving and Ruthven, in the book, what was so interesting in this chapter is that not only there were older people, according to the census, but one of them was already a published, a New England published poet. So it was a woman that already made a career, being known for being like a sentimental poetess um, throughout the early part of the century. So she was already uh, middle-aged at this time. And it's interesting that she decided to, t- to um to take film, which often is considered at this time was as well an inferior art form compared with mm. literature and poetry, right? To, and, uh, to express her feelings. And she writes one of those male voiced love poems to a female star. Um, so I thought it was interesting to think of someone that had made a name and a career for herself in poetry, um, did not think she was debasing herself by trying Mm -hmm. to publish in this this other venue that was not the literary journal. Uh, This was recurrent, a good amount of of even the young girls that I found were compiling diaries or scrapbooks about film going into teens. Some of them are gonna go off and write poetry and publish it Mm -hmm. in Christian science magazines, or they're gonna publish it in other kinds of like local newspapers. So it's interesting to think that they were already like having an affinity with self-expression and writing. Um, the other Ruthven was interesting because she writes a poem to Lillian Gish where she imagines herself already like in the twilight of life, an older man that is bored with his humdrum life and with his wife that he seems to have a very passionless marriage, heterosexual marriage. And he's like in his office after hours musing about this beautiful young star, Lillian Gish. And when I, when I found more about this, particular fan writer, she was a woman that had gone to college and had had a child, but there was no, like in their senses, there's no male head. Of her household but there is a tenant Mm. so it raises all these questions of how this woman that had had a non-normative life she was clearly educated was a southern woman as a child we are not sure if the husband died or they never married uh had this uh tenant in the house likely to make ends meet so it's it's kind of like a narrative you don't expect an educated woman not married or at least with if, if, she, if she had a child out of wedlock, it's hard to tell if they were engaged or not, but it would obviously be seen as something right. not the proper path, right, of a, of a young woman. And she's an immigrant as well. So she came, I think, from New Zealand. So that's interesting in its own right. It's like you excavate the layers of just this one. It was published more than once, too, this fan poem. So it's published in multiple uh film magazines, which suggests was beloved and interesting right. by the editors, And suddenly you're finding an immigrant voice under it.
0: That's so interesting. (laughs) (laughs) I love this stuff, obviously.
1: (laughs) I'm glad you do. It's always fun to find someone that enjoys it beyond being an obligation, you know, being like, okay, this book was published. It's nice when people are like, (laughs) that's cool. (laughs) Yeah. This
0: goes, you cite Jane Gaines, a scholar- Mm -hmm on the historical turn in film Mm -hmm. studies so a bit of a two-part question can -hmm. you just speak a little bit um about this historical turn and how it's influenced your work in general and also how specifically did it approach uh, a queer way of feeling how you approached a queer way of feeling
1: i think we call it like Jean Gaines is great. She wrote this paper like in the eighties. I was a child, right? I was barely a child. (laughs) (laughs) I was a baby, but she wrote this paper about already questioning uh, their, uh, how we write about film history and often we're over reliant on the surviving films which really limits our insight into all kinds of people that don't identify as white male and of privilege and she was particularly interested in women and she started to to discuss we know that women created scrapbooks we know that women were because they would write to the magazines and tell in their letters what they did they would even uh, share tutorials of what they did with the remnants of the images and the headshots that they found in the magazine so we knew that they were Cre- creating personal collections of film reception, but at the time that Jenkins is writing in the eighties, she says we'll never know. We know that we have enough information because of the traces that exist in published magazines, but we don't know what these women were doing in their personal lives, why they were collecting, what they were collecting. We just have this this like tantalizing specter, mm-hmm. and for a good amount of time, right, eighties and nineties is is littered with this idea of trying to capture the specter of the women that were involved in early cinema in myriad ways behind the camera and in front of the camera and on the audience, and feeling like there was no way to grasp them because we didn't have any of the sources. And it's important to remember that even the magazines that nowadays are, if you are curious, you can go to archive.org and like input, "photoplay" or motion picture magazine, and they open up to you and you have these like a million of pages. Up until like the early 2000s, you would have to spend many, many hours in an archive far from your home with limited hours with like uh, gloves, trying to see those magazines that the little that survived. And you had no idea to find out where they are, right? Because there's no... Big aggregator of information that tells you, oh, Pennsylvania has that, or like Maryland has that. You'd have you rely on the network of people that tell you. Did you know that that library bought those numbers? And this is before eBay. You couldn't go and buy them yourself. So just to like give immense props to the women and the people that were writing film history before the immense accessibility of the internet, where you can go back and how many times you take notes and you can't understand your writing. (laughs) And you, you know, they would never go back. They would just have to put like redacted. Well, we have now the pleasure of just like Googling it again and seeing it written again. So I, in the last like 20 years, this thing called, or people call it, I, I hate actually like trying to demark how the changes in in scholarship goes and try to create like brackets, you know? But we call it like new cinema history or new film theory uh, and film history. This idea that we are turning more and more to reception to understand and personal materials or materials that are not just the traditional memoirs and surviving film documents or production documents to get insight into a more diverse film, American film history. And so this historical turn is very much starting to to question how can we get an account of history that is not over reliant on the materials that were preserved or created by white people of power, and um, I'm very inspired by that movement towards trying to push against history is what remains, and being history is what we imagine in question and push to find more about, mm-hmm. and it, so it's it's part of this idea that you can only get in if a, a bigger, more diverse history if you go out and question your sources, meaning don't take for granted that what is publicized, for example, Mary Pickford or Charlotte Chaplin are known as like big stars of the early cinema and when you think of them, you think of them as representing the whole thing but instead of just taking that narrative for granted, starting to try to find the nooks and crannies in the margins and the objects that are often put in the margins because they represent a history that doesn't hold white patriarchy and heteropatriarchy, right, and start to question which stories are there and then Idea of going to the margins and start trying to dust up things and start to questioning what could we find if we go into the archives and particularly go into the boxes that say miscellaneous. That was the big thing. Like I, I do a lot of work in the (laughs) margins, the
0: the sloppy boxes.
1: I call it spelunking (laughs) It is exactly that, though, isn't it? And never to say that that is not a privilege. It's a blessing. It's a gift, but it's a privilege. And I, I could write this book because many people helped. Many people made it my privilege to do it. It was their time. It was people at the Library of Congress turning boxes and finding uh, they had like I went there physically and I was like, do you guys have scrapbooks? And they are like, no, of course not. The film division said. And then they were like, wait, let me call downstairs to the manuscript. And they were like, there's like some boxes that they have there. Do you want to look at the boxes? <laughs> it, was, it was people making these weird phone calls or it was people... Um, like trying to find fu- um, Catherine Fuller Sealy, who is another film scholar of the previous generation as mine, like had some scrapbooks in her house and she mailed them from Texas to my house in oh. California. She's like, look at them. And ultimately, they didn't have an identifiable author, so I couldn't use them. But it's those acts of kindness of like, look at this, think and see. And actually, they didn't have an unidentified uh, an author, but they had a lot of cross-dressed imagery. And I was like, is this a So it was a dead end, it seemed. I mailed it back to her with a little postcard. Thank you, thank you. But like two or three years later, I now my eye keeps like, is this a thing? Is this a thing? Like my queer eye starts being like, (laughs) is there more (laughs) stress? And suddenly there was hundreds. Mm -hmm. So you have to go into the misleading. In his box, the Herrick here, Margaret Herrick Library, amazing people work there that want to help, but they have a lot of documents that they don't know exactly what it is. They're in boxes. Yeah. And
0: there's a real provenance issue a lot of the time with these personal donations.
1: Exactly that. Yeah, exactly. And some of them were donated. I've talked with wonderful film scholars. I was talking recently with Galen Studler, also one of those trailblazer feminist historians. They were telling me that she's donated a a scrapbook. And I was like, "Can I see it?" And she's like, "Is it not there at the archive?" And I was like,
0: oh, "Oh. I am on the I'm on the receiving end of those phone calls quite a bit. <laughs> like oh, it's no. there. We haven't cataloged it. I know where it is, I promise. It's just not in the system. <laughs> it
1: takes a while." So, question for you. Yeah. Do you let people go spelunking behind the scenes? Yeah. If okay. I
0: we have the particular archive I work at is 98 years old Mm -hmm. has gone through many standards of archival description a lot of our older collections are not to today's archival standards that's Mm -hmm. fine We also if something is unprocessed and but i've done a basic check that there's no personal identifying information anything like that no what do do i care i want people to look at stuff (laughs) otherwise why are we spending all this money to house it
1: yeah because that's one of those things there's um there's for example the mary picture foundation here in la Mm -hmm. houses a lot of her personal materials including scrapbooks that we don't know who did them if it was her if it was donated to her by other fans and i'm like can i see them can i see them and they're like no and I was like but but i want to see and they're like we'll digitize them for you and i'm like do you know how many things i found in the retro verso because i went peeking and they're like it's too and i understand they're i photograph the
0: versos. (laughs) I do
1: (laughs) yes I get it it's like it's the tension again between and I'm grabby so I (laughs) back to the sources I because I purchased a good amount of them that are in the book and of course as a good hoarder I did not stop purchasing them once the book was written and I am I have them here with my shoes in the closet in a 110 <laughs> degree I'm telling this to an archivist like just okay, to kill I you a little have, bit inside. I
0: have a box of vintage postcards above my head right now
1: oh, <laughs> I'm just I sitting love it. in a
0: shoe box okay okay is, a home is a home work is work
1: okay okay yeah because I've seen like the faces of archivists or librarians like like I committed homicide by no, the it's way it's your that stuff
0: I it's your stuff it's not an archive for the public unless you want it to be <laughs>
1: <laughs> yes i actually like even taking them to talks when i do book talks i like putting one right. or two and just like next to my own book so they can kind of like all of it is touchable all of it is alive if people right. are there around it right so yeah i i, I lost track here but the okay. amazingness That's of sources. Okay.
0: <laughs> historical turn i think we i think we got there um that actually brings me this is a bit of a messy question and that it's several questions and take parts of it and leave parts of it um but this is what you were just alluding to this idea of affect um Mm -hmm. in the archive right and you cite multiple scholars who have influenced your thinking on affect which really is a major theme of the book these Mm -hmm. fans experiences of not just watching these movies but putting together these scrapbooks and just their experience of being a fan and I you write about spectatorial voltage Mm -hmm. um that your subjects are experiencing in regard to Mm -hmm. these film stars and that really resonated with me because it honestly feels like something that I see happen with archives users Mm -hmm. uh I mean I had a tour today I watched people interact with these documents and sort of Mm -hmm have some sort of emotional experience and if you want to talk about this idea of affect generally and also if you want to talk about any overlap between it's also it's interesting with your subjects because they are kind of they're both the creators and the users of these archives Mm -hmm. there's no that is you know they're not collecting for posterity for whatever they're just they're making these personal things for themselves Mm. um so i think that there's something really interesting about the use of archives in general but also specifically for these subjects so like i said messy question
1: no it was wonderful no it's wonderful I love how you simply but so effectively put it. It is. They're the creators. They're both consumers of the material. Then they create these archives and they're creating it for their own pleasure. And I think you're absolutely right. It links with this aspect of affect and the idea of spectatorial voltage. And it links how... Back to what I was saying, that I was attracted to them because I saw myself in them, but I saw in them also things that I see today from students, like you're saying, to colleagues, to fans, right? So... To, to parse it out, I was really interested in the idea of affect because one of the major distinctions the scholars make between affect and emotion is that emotion has a little bit more discrete classification. You can say it's rage, it's pain, it's happiness. But affect is a thing that it's like of the body and it takes you almost by surprise, It's almost that impulse that you can't quickly classify you can't say this is rage this is pain this is happiness you feel more like I feel it it's a jolt and it might um become um sustained enough that you say oh it's a jolt of pain I am feeling pain or happiness but until you don't immediately know how to classify it and it comes through you and it flows through you and often like you're saying can attach itself to an object to a person to an to a moment and so I was I, I kept trying to think. I, when I write, I try to think how this matters to others. Granted, it starts because I'm curious. I experiment that voltage, that affect, affective reaction of oh, this is interesting. Mm-hmm. Just like when you're like going through a store and looking at clothes, or going through a magazine and flipping it, something catches your eye and you want to spend another second with them and look at them closely. And others, you're are completely invisible to you, right? And so I was I was starting to get really confident that I was a barometer to what resonated and not. Um, when in the beginning, as we were talking about, I was so concerned with making sure this was rigorous and that it would pass muster because it comes from the place of vulnerability of being a graduate student, where you're constantly being evaluated and afraid that you won't pass muster. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but it took me a while to trust my gut and my own effective voltage. And so I kept thinking, okay, I know that I'm choosing these objects, and I know that I'm feeling these things about these objects, and I want to write about them, but how is this going to matter to the people that are reading it? How is How did it matter to the people that put these objects together? This relationship is very triangular. They looked, they chose, they made. I looked, I found, I looked, I wrote. Mm-hmm. You guys are going to pick up, going to look, going to read, going to feel. So I wanted to keep the daisy chain of like <laughs> that voltage. Yeah. <laughs> But finding the language to explain all these things and to pin them down in a way that doesn't just become coherent to you and your readers, but also becomes coherent in conversation with what other people theorize before you was one of the hardest parts. So, that sentence where I talk about the spectatorial voltage, trying to distill into language what attracts us to anything food, a place, an object, a star was really difficult. And it took I can me many imagine. Years. <laughs> yeah and it came out of a night of enormous insomnia and it was like Mm -hmm. at 4 a.m and I don't think I had slept in like two days for completely unrelated reasons nothing to do with anxiety regarding uh, work it was probably jet lag and I remember (laughs) being like having it like rotate in my brain like how do you say it how do you explain this thing that it glues you to it like if you put your like your fingers in an outlet and it was born. And when I like wrote it down, I think like a sl- trying to sleep, right? So not very coherent. <laughs> then I saw it in the mornings, like, oh yeah, this, this seems to make sense. And that's why to this day, I still take the scrapbooks to like talks. Although my archivist colleagues are horrified that everybody gets their fingerprints on it.
0: <laughs> it, doesn't, it doesn't have to be perfectly preserved forever.
1: Her, preservation exactly.
0: is use, right? Exa- or use oh is preservation.
1: I need you to make me like, I don't know if people still make those badges. Like when I was a kid, people would make, you know, those pins. <laughs> the, the buttons, yeah. Buttons, exactly. Yeah. I need you to make one of those. So every time I go to a talk and like everybody that works in archivism gets kind of like nervous <laughs> about the paper, because you know how it is with old paper, right? Like you I open do it, very well. It breaks. <laughs> yeah. And I'm just like those are the fragments of their multiple lives. It got exactly. touched.
0: <laughs> That's part of the story of this object is that it was being yeah. used at this talk, and this is the this is the evidence.
1: Exactly. It's, I often I have an ambivalent relationship because of course I want them to live beyond me, so other people can look at them and write books and and forge spectatorial voltage relationships with them. But I also feel like my job as a custodian is to keep them alive, not to keep right. them behind glass. Yeah. So
0: i think okay we're we're gonna get off track a little bit and then i will ask you my next question that is about your book okay (laughs) i have i have a very particular sort of school of archival thought that i Mm -hmm. came up in i was using and volunteering in community archives before Mm -hmm. i went to library school and all these things and i just there is a balance I don't don't want any anybody listening to this to come away thinking that I am <laughs> blase <laughs> about Dill my, my time objects. Time. Don't worry. <laughs> um there is a balance and two things. One is personal users are not institutional archives. Mm-hmm. They're not, you know, they don't necessarily have the same amount of responsibility. Mm-hmm. Um and the other is that I think often, often We come on the overly preserved side of the balance Mm -hmm. overall. And again, what is why are we spending all this money (laughs) storing all these things forever for nobody to use them?
1: And people and you disconnect and alienate people from their histories in this one. Absolutely. Because that's it makes it feel
0: like it's a rarefied thing. And it's really not it's it's yours you know, it might be, there are many, many precious irreplaceable things that I am one of the stewards of. And I, Mm -hmm. you know, we do this responsibly, but we want everyone to feel like they have some form of access. If they can't come and touch it, we'll send that, you know, it's, to me, that is part of the responsibility of preserving it.
1: And I think there has been and I mean, the, on one hand, we have the the image of it is becoming more democratized because we can put it online. And at least there is that kind of democratization of the object by just making it accessible on like a public front, um, like website for an archive or such. But I think there's something very magical that it happens. And I see it happen. It goes back to students. It goes back to community people that come to my talks, mm-hmm. where... They touch a photo of two girls kissing on the lips from eighteen, you know, eighteen or eighteen fifteen, and they see it, and suddenly it's not just the idea that you exist in a larger lineage of people that experiments, pleasures, or desires that have been codified as being different from the norm and often quite vilified. Right? You, they are not just these abstract ciphers of belonging. They are belonging. You see yourself as like I did that to my with my girlfriend yesterday, and it's hundred and fifty years later. So it's just this there's something about the fact that if your traditions and who you are and the people that came before you that are not related to you in any way, but shared desires, proclivities, creed, ethnicity, experiences that mirror your own, just, I think it creates a sense of empathy that we are direly needing in this world.
0: Absolutely. (laughs) And there's something, well, okay. I'm going to get us back on track. I I have, I have two more questions. Okay. Um, and this this might actually relate to what you were talking about i don't know um but and this can be about a queer way of feeling or just your work in general doing media and film um what are some challenges in relying on material culture to write about these time-based uh body-based experiences like movie going like crushing you know (laughs) yeah um so what are the challenges and also what are the pleasures
1: the challenges are like the scarcity or sometimes a certain disappointment or you try you travel to the places and the archive doesn't hold what you had kind of envisioned that it could or it doesn't match the fighting aids You know, the finding aids are kind of vague and you're hoping for better and or you hope, you know, like you you have to kind of like steal your heart for the expectations. Mm -hmm. And as we're discussing, it's cost. um, It costs you your labor, your time, money and that you invest in going to these places. And often they are remote. So you have to take multiple modes of transportation and pay certain kinds of fees just to have access to them. Mm -hmm. So there is that. And then there's a responsibility of, because there's scarcity, you constantly want to like uni- universalize or create like really firm. I found this thing because I found this thing. Maybe this means that many people felt this way and you have to kind of constantly rein yourself back and like nuance your language, not be too mm-hmm. forceful. It, perhaps it was true to this, and and this happens particularly when you're dealing with intersectionality. Um, I was reading, I was writing a, a piece recently about faith and morality and spectatorial female pleasure in the teens and uh, young girls that in their personal materials talked a lot about their faith and their particular um, religious experiences and how they kind of in the same sentence that they were describing like their their church going or the ways that they wanted to uphold their ideas about morality morality religion and gender, they use that to disparage certain stars that they found more lewd or that they found they weren't behaving well. At the same time, they were talking about having a crush in a boy or a girl on the street, right? So like you constantly want to, you get close to these objects and you start to feel like you have inside and you understand the narrative like if they were characters right and you want to write the narrative for them and the narrative ends there's people that I I never know what happens to most of these people even if I know the date in which they died so the fact that I only have the materials that they wrote and sometimes they wrote diaries until they were 19 and it ends and I'm like wait what happened next (laughs) I don't know yeah yeah so materiality leaves you all these cliffhangers and then tells you I know you want to build a bridge you can't you are not the biographer of this person nor are you a fictional writer you where you can just give them whatever happy ending or crazy ending as you want so you're constantly going forward excited and hopeful and then reeling it all back and just putting back like the historian hat so that is one of the ways in which I felt like I came to love it so I can say that this was a challenge the disappointment the question marks the open-endedness that and the unresolvedness was initially frustrating but the older I got and life got more uncertain and more unparsed Mm -hmm. I got to relax into it and I, it's kind of like death and our bodies dying. We one day, and bodies of those we love dying, we one day come to terms with it in the sense that it doesn't wreck us and it, with with the paralyzing fear. You accept it that you cannot change it. And so when I was writing the book, I accepted that there was much I couldn't write about with certainty. There was much that I did not know and that it was up for me to do the my, the best I could with the materials that I found, and accept that others will come, will add, maybe we'll disprove, maybe we'll push back, maybe we'll use my own archive once I kind of make it public <laughs> or donate it to do so. And I have to accept that as a blessing of creating something and putting it in the world, is opening a door, whoever goes through it and whatever they do it on the other side is up to them. It's not my responsibility. So there was that, think, that was. yeah.
0: I think that's a great way of looking at it. Um, and that brings us to the last question, which luckily is related. So that was smooth. But <laughs> Good. what are what are you working on? What is what is in store?
1: I'm working about death. <laughs> it's like, yeah, it's really very, it's right, you were right, it was so smooth. But also it probably <laughs> shows uh, my proclivities um, that I was once a goth girl. That's probably, and a grunge girl. Talk about categories. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I should not. Just because you had a crush when you were 14 on Edgar Allan Poe, it does not mean you're a goth. <laughs> uh, it was completely an emotional and literary crush, I should say. But um, I'm working on death, but I shouldn't say it as if it seemed like it's uh, the antipodes or like the opposite or the dire of what I, I wrote here. I was just very curious about these ideas and non-normativity kept expanding. And so when I wrote this book, I actually had already started working about uh, the girls that loved the movies and created personal repositories that were not all about upholding the ideas of aspiration, escapism, and joy that Hollywood cinema uh, promoted as being um their principal goal that they would bring joy and satisfaction and uplift to uh, uh their demographic and particularly young women um and this was a way of kind of like protecting uh, the industry protecting itself from any kind of accusations of not being wholesome that were starting to rise in the late teens and 20s which will eventually end up in like the production code and the censorship years of the 30s and 60s in hollywood so i'm I already was aware that there was a lot of anxiety about what the movies were doing to vulnerable populations, particularly those that were considered the most influential young women. And so I started to, at the same time that I was writing this book about these queer ways of feeling, and there's an edge of hopefulness and kind of like joy and subversiveness to this book. But I was finding some personal materials that had other kinds of affects, more negative or at least sharper. A certain kind of resistance to happiness, a resistance to conformity, and I was finding that as I dug into that archive of the personal fans that experience Hollywood cinema as a porthole to talk about negative feelings, that they often had Uh, Different classes or different experiences. So they were working class or they were rural and they were struggling uh, with finding employment or they were industrially employed and felt exploited in their jobs or exploited by their large families that expected them to bring their very meager salaries and subsidize domestic life Um, many of them identified as urban but immigrants so living in situations that did not allow for them to feel that the dreams of opulence that were on the screen were accessible to them and so there was a lot of these objects colored the spectrum of rage to self-loathing to depression to a certain kind of Snarkings, if, mm-hmm. if I can be anachronistic. Mm-hmm. So I found, for example, scrapbooks where one young woman was collecting only announcements relating regarding the stars of death. Uh, so obituaries or sickness of the star stars got the flu they're very sick or divorces or breakups so all of these kinds of like negative life experiences that poke holes at the idea that a hollywood stardom was a happy happy thing that could happen and i kept digging and in published magazines i could find suicide letters or criminal statements of girls that identified as loving the movies but the movies that instilled in them these really negative feelings that um, drew them to either hurt themselves or commit crimes Uh, Mm -hmm. to try to advance their lives or to try to imitate what they saw on the screens or just the frustration of their lives not matching what they saw on the screen and so that's the book I'm working on and this idea it's called desire will end me. I love it. (laughs) Thank you so it's very much it's kind of there's a couple of chapters written but as with these things it's probably 10 years until I see you again to talk about (laughs) that one. If I can
0: find an archives angle.
1: <laughs> oh yeah, I I bet you can find an archiving because again, it's similar materials, but instead of being like you know love struck poetry, it's gonna be suicide letters and such okay. materials.
0: <laughs> well, I'll keep I'll keep an eye out for it in twenty thirty three.
1: Probably yeah, <laughs> when it will be like one hundred and fifty degrees in November. Probably exactly. <laughs> exactly.
0: All right, well, thank you
1: so much for your time. Thank you. It was extraordinary. Thank you for giving me the opportunity for such intelligent questions.